For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Series 5, Pass the Mic. Have you been enjoying it? I hope you liked last week's show where Aja Barber was in my chair. If you haven't listened to that one, make sure you go back and check it out. Okay, this week, it's my great pleasure to introduce our next guest host. She is Oditi Maya. She was someone that I was super keen to get involved right from the start because of her work on the need to decolonize fashion. She's young, she's very smart, and I would say that Aditi is my idea of a new generation influencer in that she's really using her platform to shake things up and kind of forensically examine these clunky old systems that fashion is still so often based on. She's done loads of writing about garment workers and supply chains, but today she's talking about something else, the need to move beyond gender binaries. She's in conversation with Alok Vaidmanon, a gender non-conforming poet, author, designer and performance artist. I think it's safe to say that stuff's been happening since they talked. So instead of doing this little intro solo, I did ask her to hop on here so we could do it together and unpack a few recent developments in this week's topic, which is degendering fashion. Since you recorded this interview, it was in September. A few things have happened, haven't they, that have kind of put this in the headlines in quite a noisy way. Right, right. Namely, Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue, American Vogue, in a gown. And then also there was the Gucci Fest. Now, if you haven't heard of this, it was instead of doing the Spring 21 show, Gucci ran a kind of seven-day digital film festival directed by Gus Van Sant. Amazing. And um, the first film featured Silvia Calderoni, who's a non-binary artist and performer. And it's kind of this really beautiful, languid film in their Rome apartment. And they're wearing this wonderful lace bodysuit. And there's a bit where they throw a dress out of the window. But it's a super kind of aspirational look at a completely degendered fashion picture. And I just thought it was so interesting that a lot in your interview talks about how slow fashion's been to embrace these ideas in a practical sense, yet suddenly, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's been so many things since this interview that has happened. Jonathan Van Ness's cover for Self Magazine also comes to mind. People might know Jonathan or JVN from the TV show Queer Eye for a Straight Guy. Mm -hmm. Correct, correct. I've watched the show. I am a bit of a fan. <laughs> Everyone from Tan France, the South Asian representation. Oh, yeah, to of course. TV. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So Alok posted about this shoot in Self Magazine on their Instagram. They had a really interesting insight on this. You know, the importance of JVN being on this cover was really rooted in the fact that JVN, as a non-binary person, is kind of proclaiming and reclaiming the de-gendering fashion space. In the words of Alok, there is an ongoing project to disappear gender non-conforming people. For centuries, we've been repressed and maligned to naturalize the cultural fiction of the gender binary. If you don't see us, then you can pretend that dividing billions of people into one or two categories is quote unquote natural or not a political choice. Wow. And then there was obviously the US Vogue cover as well. But that's very different. I mean, there's been some controversy around this. Is Harry Styles just playing with the kind of buzziness of the role? How 
Road Stars has talked a lot, though, about the kind of ridiculousness of the gender binary. I mean, you can look through interviews from the past couple of years. There was one with Teen Vogue. What do you think about that? I mean, in your interview with Alok, they said that they did this big business of fashion talk and they expected loads of attention from the fashion industry and designers to kind of really take up the challenge. And they said they just heard, they said crickets, but, you know, just silence, like nothing. And then maybe designers were also telling them, like, we do agree with you, but practically people aren't ready for this. Right, right. And I think that's why, you know, having Harry Styles in that moment was so important. But there's a lot of nuances to unpack there. Granted that Harry Styles is a straight cis man, also a white man of who gets to kind of represent this movement of degendering fashion. It's something I wish I could have asked a look. But thankfully, (laughs) everyone did ask them. And they posted on Instagram about that cover. And I wanted to share a quote from that. Alok shared that Harry Styles is the first non-woman to appear solo on the cover of American Vogue, let alone wearing a dress. And in one of the pictures, he's outfitted by a gender-fluid designer, Harris Reid. So Alok went on to say, am I happy to see Harry being celebrated for openly flouting gendered fashion norms? Yes. Do trans femmes of color receive praise for doing the same thing every day? No. So essentially, I guess we could say, while this is a sign of progress of society's evolution away from the gender binary, we also have to confront the fact that Harry Styles, as a white man with a lot of privilege, should not be upheld as the face of gender neutral fashion. Alok said something really apt. They said, they are holding space for joy while also insisting on a more expansive form of freedom. Wow. I love this interview. I think it's so rich with so much in terms of fashion history context. I mean, a look is absolutely eloquent. It's amazing, right? But what I just want to, before we dive into it, just wanted to ask you why you chose them. Like I said, all right, carte blanche, who do you want to talk to? Honestly, my mind went straight to a look. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. For one, I think it's the shared South Asian identity. I think the conversation around gender binaries in fashion is something we haven't broken down enough. I mean, if you think about like the sustainable fashion space, right, at its core, it's about reimagining the fashion industry, whether that's like environmental impact, how we view labor, But again, that cultural programming of how we see gender is so ingrained. And I don't think there's been enough conversation of really breaking that down further. And Alok was the perfect person to kind of lead that conversation. Okay, you're in for a treat now, dear listeners. Remember to check out the show notes at thewardrobecrisis.com for all the references and links, including one to watch back Alok's Business of Fashion Voices talk and links to find Aditi's work. Make sure you follow her on Instagram at Aditi Mayer. That's A-D-I-T-I-M-A-Y-E-R. Alok is Alok V Menon on Instagram. And you can find me, as usual, at Mrs. Press and at The Wardrobe Crisis. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you listen to the show and please do tell your friends to check it out too. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, everyone. I am your guest host for this week's episode. My name is Aditi Meyer, and I'm a sustainable fashion writer, photojournalist, and labor rights activist based out of Los Angeles. I am so excited to welcome Alok to the show this week. We're going to be talking about gender identity, our South Asian roots, and how all of this ties into the larger fashion industry. Hi, Alok. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So to start, because this is a fashion podcast, can we start with what you're wearing? Can you paint that (laughs) for us? Yeah, sure. I'm wearing these really fun dangly earrings from this amazing South Asian designer named Alaya. The brand is called This Is Alaya. And then I'm wearing a Black Trans Lives Matter t-shirt and then a lungi because I'm at home. So I just love wrapping lungis when I'm at home. It's the most comfortable. I love that. I love that. So I have been reading your book, Beyond the Gender Binary, which has been so, so amazing. And something that I love that you say is that you say gender is a story, not a word. Can you explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. So we inherit the legacy of racist science in this country, which sought to categorize and classify and rank people on the basis of their presumed gender and sex. So we're often brought up with the idea that there's only two options, man or woman. But actually, if you were to take two random women in the world, they have far more unique from one another than they have in common. So these words, in fact, conceal more than they reveal. And so when I say gender is a story, what I'm actually saying is each person has an infinite complexity that can only be narrated through the power of storytelling. That I see stories as anecdotes to categories, which in so many ways eclipse possibility. Incredibly powerful. And in your book, you share a lot about growing up. And like many people, we are navigating all these different identities, whether that's being a part of the South Asian diaspora to growing up in Texas. So how was it for you navigating these multiple identities and geographies as someone that grew up as part of the South Asian diaspora to growing up in Texas? You know, I think my entire life, I've experienced an appreciation for collage and hybridity because I never had access to a kind of coherence as the product of diaspora. And then as someone who is non-binary and gender non-conforming, I never really could find home in a presupposed fixed way. And so I had to learn how to develop an alternative understanding of home. And for me, home actually doesn't require that kind of allegiance to a singularity. Home Mm -hmm. actually is hybridity. It's being able to recognize that everything is actually composed of so many different parts, that nothing is actually a singularity. And so in that way, I think I've done what a lot of products of diaspora have done across time and space, which is to reimagine the very conditions of oppression, the technologies of discrimination, and to actually redeploy them as potentiality for creative expression. One thing you shared in your book that really spoke to me was that you talked about the first day you wore a dress in public felt like a reunification of mind, body, and spirit. And the way I always thought about fashion was two ways. On one end, it's deeply personal, but it's also a public endeavor, especially when we think about how we dress becomes politicized in the public domain. So can you talk a little bit about how your relationship to fashion has changed over the years? I think that we are so developed in our vocabulary of dissonance and trauma and injury, but we have a paucity of language to describe the pleasures and joys of being. And that's especially the case when it comes to trans existence, where narratives of our violence are overdetermined. That's not to say that there's not incredible violence, but it is to say 
that there's also incredible power and joy and creativity. For me, fashion was the way that I began to express my agency because I was assigned male at birth and because I was Indian, there was such a stringent idea of what I should and could be. And I found that to be so suffocating. And so through style, I could actually disarticulate people's presumptions of what I should be and actually advance a concept of what I am. And at first, I didn't really have much access because I knew that if I wore clothing and jewelry that are associated with, quote, womanhood or femininity, which is ridiculous, that I could be punished. And so I had to be very resourceful and sort of trying to express myself. So what I would do is I would take my old clothes from my back of my parents' closets and I would wear like my dad's old button-down shirts from the 70s and my mom's old power blazers with mega shoulder vats. And I was just (laughs) mixing so many things and trying to tell a story. And people would be like, why do you care so much about style? Because I think over and over again, style is dismissed as superficial. But what I always respond to that is it's the very things that we dismiss as superficial that actually are the things that are of survival. I think what's shifted over time is that now I have access to a different kind. I don't want to say more, but a different kind of safety and a different kind of agency where I can actually self-fashion. And so now I think I'm truly embodying the wildest dreams aesthetically that I had as a child. I think so much of what I'm doing with fashion is trying to materialize the kind of feeling that I wanted so badly to access when I was younger, but couldn't. Yeah. So fashion is deeply, deeply rooted in like this agency to proclaim ourselves however we want to the world. But for a lot of gender nonconforming folks or folks that deviate from heteronormativity, how they dressed, something you wrote in your book was that they're often choosing between compromising their safety for their authenticity. So when it comes to gender binaries and fashion, in the fashion industry, because it operates on this dark binary, has pretty much normalized a very violent system and has just gone on by saying these are just the way that things are. So what are the systems of power that created the system where we assume that this is just the way things are or the way they're supposed to be? I guess the best way I can answer this is uh, during quarantine, I've been doing a lot of deep historical study to try to understand this moment, because I think so often we try to use this word unprecedented but actually everything is precedented and everything is a descendant of something. And until we actually grapple with the foundational ideas, especially in this country, we're never going to actually get over things. And I think it's really important to understand that in this country, there were a series of anti-cross-dressing laws that essentially criminalized people for wearing more than three articles of clothing that were different than what they were supposed to wear for their assigned sex. And I recently read a book called Arresting Dress, which is about the implementation of cross-dressing laws in the 19th century in San Francisco. And what was so powerful about it is it had portraits of gender-variant people in prison. They're sort of mugshots and maybe like interviews of what the police officers were asking and what these people kept on saying over and over again is, I am not cross-dressing. This is who I am. And that's a story that I think doesn't get told because the framework has become such that we are socialized into thinking that a dress belongs to women. But actually, the first sort of feminine garb was actually worn by men in the 17th, 18th century. And then secondly, women used to be thrown in prison for wearing suits. 
and pants, but we've done mm-hmm. the due diligence to actually be gender pants, but yet the silhouette of a dress, the silhouette of a skirt is still marked as feminine. So I think what I bring up history to say is all of the gender norms that we have actually are descendants of criminalized activities, one. And then two, history teaches us that this is not a new fight. It's actually an inheritance of a very old struggle. And then three, it teaches us possibility of what could be if literally just in the 1960s, women were arrested for wearing suits. And now we have Zendaya basically inventing the suit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What could we have in 10 years from now if we did that kind of due diligence to actually check the misogynist calculations that make skirts and dresses about women's wear? Yeah. And when it comes to that due diligence, like how do we change these norms and systems that currently operate, especially in gender binaries in fashion? We have a long way to go. So I kind of perhaps naively last year gave a talk at the Business of Fashion Voices conference called Clothes Have No Gender. And I was calling for the complete degendering of fashion and beauty industries. And I thought like, okay, this is going to make the change. Like people are going to be in my inbox. I'm going to be out here trying to get these companies to ship. And it was just crickets. And what I learned is that all of these fashion designers were like, we agree with you intellectually, but the customer's just not there yet. Mm. We don't imagine that people who have been socialized their entire lives into thinking this way are going to magically start wearing skirts because the social impact is too much the kinds of violence that people will be exposed to is too much. So it's just not practical. But then I got frustrated because it's a chicken and egg situation. It's only considered not practical because it's not done. But when it's done, then people will look back retroactively and be like, oh, that's how we did it. And that's how cultural change works. You have to be willing to take risks and you have to be willing to put yourself in inconvenience way. I believe that we exist in a system of gender apartheid where actually we have naturalized an incredibly violent process of sorting bodies on the basis of their presumed genitalia. That's disgusting and a heteronormative relic that I'd like to think that we could move beyond. So I think that actually every company, every designer, every artisan that is concerned with people's dressing should take it as an ethical, not a political, but an ethical imperative to degender their lines. What that looks like is not the creation of new products, but actually shifting the way that you market your products, shifting the ways that you name your products, shifting the kinds of bodies that you feature in your products and campaigns. Yeah, I think this brings up the idea of power, you know, how we kind of hold on to the gender binary to hold on to power. And you talk about these campaigns and things. And I think there's certain terms, like think of gender neutral that has grown so much in fashion. But when you think about the way that these terms have been represented to the public, it's often, you know, centered on cis skinny white people a lot of times. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think true representation kind of looks like in that domain, especially as we see the rise of like terms like gender neutral fashion. Absolutely. So for the people who might not know this, but who are listening to this podcast, unfortunately, gender neutrality has been co-opted in the service of really bad fashion choices, (laughs) like all gray, all drab, and inspired by the silhouette of a suit. And I want to sort of unpack that history for people. So the suit became sort of formalized as menswear in around the 1820s. And it had to do with actually tailors being inspired by Greek 
sculpture. And this was a moment in the 1800s of reckoning where Europe was beginning the project of establishing whiteness. And what establishing whiteness actually required is the perversion of history. So there had to be a direct trajectory from Roman and Greek empire towards the European empire. So there was a turn to Greek empire and Greek sculptural form, even though Greek sculptures are actually multicolored and are painted. Uh, we think of them as white, but that's not actually what was manifest. Oh, wow. And so they were actually building their conception of the male and female form from a misrepresented, idealized form in the service of white supremacy. That's why the suit and the silhouette of the suit has become sutured in our imagination as the default, because in our head, we still think humanity equals white cis men. Mm-hmm. So it's not even for me just about gender, it's about race. And actually, when you learn history, gender and race are one and the same. They're mutually informed. Gender is a racial construct, race is a gendered construct. So that's why the unisex moment of the 1970s going into the 80s actually was more about destigmatizing quote unquote male forms and aesthetics to be universal, whereas quote female quote forms and aesthetics were constantly seen as feminine. What you see in the early 20th century as well is the dress reform movement. This is also in the 19th century, where cis women feminists, rightfully so, are protesting the subjugation of women. But what they end up doing is also participating in a kind of masculinism, where they say the way that women get ahead is by dressing like men. So you see this aggressive effort to penalize women and to judge women for self-adornment, because self-adornment is seen as foppish, ridiculous, a marker of savagery and primitivity. So what I diagnose is that sort of the historical conjectures of the racialization of aesthetics and the recruitment of a project of aesthetic empire. And then secondly, a kind of cis woman, white woman feminism that demeaned the feminine, because I think that there are many traditions of women of color and black feminists and indigenous feminisms, which actually find power in the feminine and historically have actually challenged that conflation of femininity with weakness. What we have inherited today is a kind of political terrain where the dress is still seen as like a vestige or marker of this kind of impractical, superfluous femininity. And so what I'm really trying to do with my design work, with my aesthetic work, with my style, is to actually say femininity is worth fighting for, one. Mm It's not actually just this like um, sort of commodified and form of entrapment. That is such a reductive idea of what femininity is and could be. And that secondly, all of us are both masculine and feminine and either. And so, so often the framing of gender neutrality is sincere and that it's trying to make this not just about trans people. And I commend and applaud that. But where it falls flat is that we need to actually say that this is about expanding the creative opportunities for all people. All of us should be able to wear what we feel like without fear of being gendered and put into a box because of it. Wow, thank you for that history lesson. That is super interesting. And it gets me thinking about, you know, fashion as an art form at its core should be pushing, you know, the bounds of our imagination. But right now it seems like we're perpetuating a very narrow view. And so just in terms of fashion as an art form, as a media, what do you love and what drives you mad about the fashion world? It's a love-hate relationship um, because on the one hand, what I love about fashion is it's wearable art. I get to bring art everywhere. It flows out of the galleries, out of the stage, 
there's an orchestrated project, especially, I'm sorry, I've been reading so much. I'm just regurgitating a lot of what I've been thinking, but there's an orchestrated project within Western world to privatize art and to make creative expression a professionalized domain. So it's like, I'm an artist, so therefore I'm creative. You're not an artist, therefore you're not, which is absurd because we all have the capacity for creative expression. And I would say we don't even have the capacity. We have the need for creative expression that to live a good life, one must be creating. And so what fashion actually does is it democratizes art and it brings it outside of the sort of hallowed grounds of um, the fine art world. And it brings fine art to the people. And that's why it's demeaned in fine art spaces is its accessibility and its ability to actually give power to people to create creative selfhoods. In that way, for me, fashion is a vehicle for creative subversion and aesthetic resistance. It is a mechanism for nourishment, of recuperation, of trauma coping. Like if I am going to be harassed, at least I'm going to feel glamorous while it's happening. That's the why I'm alive. So I love that. What I hate about the fashion world, I mean, I could labor on this forever. One, (laughs) because of your interest, I'll speak to this first, is its utter unsustainability is a real crisis that needs to be accounted for. This emphasis on the new, the new, the next, the greatest needs to be challenged. And then I think secondly, the kinds of ways that we've done fashion historically is we take statistical aberrations and we position those bodies as the aspirational body. Mm -hmm. So actually the majority of people in the world are not thin, are not white, are not hairless. A lot of us are not gender conforming. And yet what fashion does is it actually manufactures a kind of beauty that leaves us constantly wanting. And therefore, the way that fashion sells its product is by saying, you lack and I will help you feel whole. Mm -hmm. But it's always a disingenuous encounter because I'll make you feel whole for one minute and then you have to change the way that you look again. I want to change fashion because I don't want to lose the power of fashion. But the way that we change fashion is actually about humbling ourselves and saying the role of designers and of the fashion industry is to give people the tools that they can use to find their own healing. So rather than saying, this is what I'm defining beauty as, what if we said, what is your expression of beauty and how can I help you actualize that? That's a fundamentally different ethical relationship with the consumer that I feel like a lot of fashion industries are loath to do. But I think especially in light of this global pandemic, there's a moment of reckoning within fashion consciousness where designers and companies are having to reconsider business as usual. And what I hope in this kind of moment of reckoning is that we shift away from this narrative of a top-down kind of like, we determine what is beauty and what is fashion. We are the arbiters or the gatekeepers, if you will, of what elegance is to rather a more humble form of design work to be like my job is actually to be an avenue, a gallery, to depict the forms of becoming and beauty that the people that I admire are. And that's why I think like people like Christian Cyrano are really important in the creative and design world, because Christian is actually amplifying not just size-inclusive beauty, but I think a different ethic around beauty that says it can't be pinpointed into one narrow, stringent, size-zero, couture European frame. It actually is much more polyvocal. Mm-hmm. 
And that brings me to your own work in being a fashion designer. For folks that don't know, can you talk a little bit about your own work in working as a fashion designer, creating your own collection, and paint a picture of what it looks like? Sure. So I kind of started designing clothes out of necessity because I'm a, typically, I mean, pre-pandemic that was, I'm a touring performance artist, which means I always needed stage outfits. So it was just more functional and practical to start working on my own. But then also I wanted to sort of create a visual critique of this conversation we've been having around gender neutrality. I was fatigued at how the majority of gender neutral collections were so utterly uninspiring and insipid. And I wanted to show how dresses and skirts and color and texture and fabric could also be gender neutral. And so I've designed three gender neutral fashion collections and it feels disingenuous to call them gender neutral because I think all fashion should already be gender neutral. But unfortunately, that's where we're at in this world. And I did that because I wanted to show the fashion world, here's how it's done. Once again, I think my naivety was there where I believed that once I sort of showed people how to do it, more people would take those cues, but that's just not not been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, what we're seeing happening now is that gender non-conforming aesthetics are making it into the fashion world, but they're templated on thin white cis bodies. And so I think that what is so central to my fashion design is also that I was the model. And that's a narrative that I feel like I haven't uplifted before, but now I'm being more explicit about, which is that it's like visible gender nonconformity, chest hair popping out of the dresses, brown skin. That is part of this conversation of degendering fashion. It's not about giving more options exclusively to thin white cis people. It's about actually redefining beauty to begin with. So what I ask potential people who are interested in designing gender neutral fashion is, are you trying to just incorporate gender neutrality into your preconceived ideas of beauty? Or are you trying to redefine beauty to begin with? And unless you're trying to redefine beauty, then you're not actually creating gender neutral fashion. That's not to say that every gender neutral collection needs to exclusively feature trans and gender non-conforming talent. But it is to say that there's a crisis right now where trans and gender non-conforming genius makes it into the room, but not our personhood. Definitely. And I think that speaks to a lot of the current landscape of representation, where when we think about image making, you know, image making is is incredibly powerful, but the way and intention that often goes about, it feels like, you know, the true intention is being missed. So in your own words, what does true representation look like to you? Whether that's from who we showcase on campaigns, from how brands are operating on an internal level as well. I think representation will always be a failed project, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And what I mean by that is the the sort of metaphor that comes to mind is trying to grab water from a stream. Like, of course, you'll be able to get something in the palm of your hand, but the life force of the vitality of a flowing river cannot be recreated in any container. And so representation is just that, a container. It's a glimpse It's not the full experience. We're trying to capture. What do images do? They capture. We're trying to capture something that is actually ephemeral and in constant motion. So when we begin from that framework that it's always going to be imperfect, then I think the way that we do it is how do we continue to strive toward true inclusivity, recognizing that we'll never actually be able to achieve it. And so what that looks like for me is just actually 
an honest account of what it means to be alive. And that's, once again, a humbling aesthetic because I think fashion has been an aspirational account of what it means to be alive. But what I'm actually asking for is an honest account of what it means to be alive. An honest account of what it means to be alive is that majority of people right now are struggling from a global recession are that the majority of people can't really justify like uh, making an expensive purchase when there's so many other things that they're preoccupied with. Majority of people, like I said, are not thin. That is just incorrect. So how do we do justice to the reality of living? And I worry that the reason that a lot of these brands continue to fail is because their interlocutors are all homogenous. So they are reflecting their world, but their world is so wrong. And I, I think this maybe speaks to the failure of social media is that I'm sure a lot of these casting agents follow diverse people online. That's not a question. But they still only see those people as people who are trapped within the prism of social media. And so what we have Mm -hmm. right now is a kind of digital tiered system where inclusive aesthetics are just seen as internet, whereas the brands with the budgets continue to regurgitate the same kind of hackneyed singular kind of beauty. And I want to agitate against that and actually say the only way for fashion to continue in this kind of climate, economic, upright, racial justice uprising moment is to fundamentally redefine fashion as a people's project. And I think in doing that, you're going to actually find more consumer interest. People love fashion. They don't love exclusion and hierarchy. And a lot of people think that fashion can only exist with exclusion and hierarchy, but I don't think that that's ambitious enough. I think that there are ways to imagine fashion like you're doing in your work and I'm doing in mine that actually have a different commitment. Definitely. And with that in mind, you know, there's always this talk about the future of fashion, but I think it's so important to note that all of these issues are so pressing and they have to be reimagined in the present. So especially when it comes to de-gendering fashion, we talk about the future of fashion is this way and that. But what are some steps that folks can do in their day-to-day lives as they engage with fashions, whether they are a consumer or a designer that can kind of speak to making this a reality in the present? So I think the first thing is that trans and gender nonconforming people have been calling for the abolition of gender norms in fashion since the very beginning, and no one's listening to us. So we need everyone, regardless of your gender, to make this an issue. In the same ways in which sustainability has become a sort of top five issue in the fashion world, I'd love to see degendering fashion make it there alongside issues that are important, like cultural appropriation. And the way that that happens is when all of us start asking difficult questions asking our favorite brands, our favorite designers, why do you continue to gender your products? What is the purpose of this? Mm -hmm. And then I think the next piece is in our own lives, how are we subverting gender tropes? Are we dressing to fit an idea of what woman or man should be? Or are we dressing for ourselves? Because I don't think it's fashion to try to look like a statue from ancient Greece. (laughs) Um, I think that that's more assimilation. Fashion for me has always been about rough edges, eccentricity, vagrancy. So in your own sartorial choices, how are you dislocating gendered assumptions? And that should not just be seen as the domain of trans and gender occupying people. I think all of us should be unsettling gendered ideas and expectations. And then I think the third thing that we can really start to do is to support the movement for trans and gender occupying people. Because I think that What's concerning to me about sort of like a Zara gender neutral collection 
is that on this image that Zara will produce, there'll be accolades around like fashion avant-gardism, like amazing. And then the very consumers who are wearing those products who are transgender or conforming people are being attacked on the street. How -hmm. is that not seen as an issue? I think what if the fashion world actually made anti-harassment an issue, actually saw misogyny as a crucial thing to work against as a fashion industry? I really want fashion leaders to take more public and visible stances against the rising wave of transphobia. There's so many incredible designers in the UK, so few of them have spoken out against the vociferous upsurge of anti-trans feminism in the United Kingdom. Why? Because on the one hand, they're drawing inspiration from trans communities in terms of makeup, posing, aesthetics, photography, fine art. I can't tell you how many brands and companies tell me that I'm on their mood boards. Fuck your mood boards. Mm -hmm. Like if, if we're just inspiration to you, I don't care if you're inspired by me, if I'm being spat on in and outside your store. We have to take public stances to actually reprimand the powers that be that are whistleblowing around transphobia as a way to mobilize their conservative factions. And it's only getting worse. So I think that like any conversation for me around degendering fashion in future has to also involve that kind of political commitment and solidarity. And that also looks like within the fashion world, creating economic opportunities for trans and gender nonconforming creatives and especially designers. Why is it that even though trans people have been on the front lines of creative expression across cultures, across times, across geographies, it's very difficult to name established openly trans designers. Why? Mm-hmm. We need to create economic pathways for people who are designing sustainably, designing gender neutral fashion to actually not just be seen as niche markets. The way that we make niche a new norm is by actually investing materially in the people who are designing the kind of world that we want. Most definitely. And that's something I think about a lot, right? If we, Even if we think about the traditional fashion industry versus, say, the sustainable fashion industry, the fact that we have this niche alternative market of sustainability or whatever it may be really speaks to the way that we have normalized violence in the traditional fashion industry. So I think it's all about reimagination there. And I think what's so powerful for you as a multi-hyphenate is the way that all of your work interacts with aesthetic and beauty in some way. And at this point in time, we've seen how fashion time and time again has always been written off as frivolous. But at the end of the day, fashion, art, whatever it may be, is really what pushes culture. So what would you say has been the role of beauty in your activism? I think it's only been within the past year or two that I've claimed that word, um, which is, I think, for me, a form of unlearning sexism. And I want to be really honest about that. Like I was sort of alluding to with my historical sketch of the dress reform movement, there's a kind of specter to a lot of feminist thinking, especially in the Western world, where we've been misled into thinking that the only ways that we can get legitimacy is by pursuing white masculinity. And I really want to challenge that and ask us to unlearn the kind of sexist norms that we're taught about makeup and beauty and glamour as just being kind of acts of hedonism or self-indulgence. That's just not true. And that's such a masculinist frame of what that is. And so for me, reclaiming beauty has meant that I get to define what beauty is for me. I wrote a CNN op-ed about this a few months ago where I said beauty is about looking like yourself. 
That is my definition of beauty. And that beauty is especially about looking like yourself, even in the face of political and social repression. So the people that I find most beautiful are the South Asian women and girls who aren't removing their body hair, even though they're being shamed by everyone for it, are fat folks who are being systematically designed out of the population, but are insisting on the integrity of their bodies, are people with disabilities, trans and gender nonconforming people with whom clothes are never even designed for, who are finding ways to actually hack at mainstream fashion and make it work for them in their own bodies. Those are acts of profound beauty because they're acts of profound worth that are found in actually saying, I belong. And so beauty, I think, is the catalyzing and mobilizing force of everything that I do. I used to think that what I was doing was just um, criticism, deconstruction, taking apart, dismembering, dismantling. But that's just unambitious. What I'm actually doing is there's a life force of vitality, and that is beauty, to actually say, the reason we need to degender fashion is because I want fashion to be beautiful again. And right now it's not, because binaries aren't beautiful. The reason that we're committed to sustainability is because that's what beauty actually looks like. Beauty looks like reciprocity, empathy, dignity, labor, uh, fair labor. All these things are actually profoundly ugly. So we need to redefine beauty. And I think that's been a reoccurring sort of theme in this conversation to actually being about your own pursuit of self-realization and actualization. Most definitely. And I think that's why it's so important to see degendering fashion, not only as an issue for the gender nonconforming or LGBTQ plus community, but just for a freer, more just world. With that said, Alok, what gives you hope? There's so much hope all around, you know, Rebecca Solnit writes that optimism and pessimism both presume a kind of future. Hope doesn't have to presume a future. I'm hopeful precisely because I don't know. So the unknowability of the universe is what gives me hope. Because if I was to know, I might feel bleak. Um, And especially in these moments right now, there's so much bleakness. People, because of their trauma, fixate on an idea that there is a clear narrative. But that's not how the universe works. It's actually tumultuous. And if we surrender to that tumultuousness, we can accept that things can profoundly ricochet in the next day, week, month, year. So I'm hopeful that things are ricocheting. I'm hopeful that the world is vibrating. I'm hopeful that things are quivering and trembling. I'm hopeful that people are rising up against eons of entrenched racial calculus that has dispossessed Black and Indigenous people in this country of their very personhood. I am hopeful about women and trans and gender non-binary people all across the world rising up against the fascist regime of the gender binary and patriarchy. I'm hopeful about increased transparency of government corruption. There's so many things to be hopeful about. I really believe, I guess, in the power of narrative, you know? I think first and foremost of all the identities that I have, poet is my number one. And as a poet, what I learned is it's not about what we're saying, it's about how we're saying it. And we're so fatigued in trying to prove the horror of the issue that we care about. I'm sure you know sustainability, to have to labor to explain, this is what climate change is, this is why it's bad, blah, 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 blah. That's not working, you know? All the evidence is there. All the statistics are there, all the facts are there. How we actually get people to transform is how we communicate that information, the way of living. And so I think I have hope because there's so much prolific 
creativity out there of people who are leveraging criticism from not just a commitment to dismemberment, but a commitment to delightful insurrection of a kind of creative life force that feels irresistible. Mm. And so I know with your book, a large focus of that is really speaking to the youth. And so if you can give your teenage self advice, what would that be? Don't listen to anyone else's advice because everyone else is giving you feedback based off of themselves, but you're your own you. And the truth is, it's an impossible and extremely promising and painful truth is that you're the only person that can give birth to yourself. Your parents tried, school tried, all these things tried, but they will always fail. It's only when you take your you-ness as your purpose on earth that you can manifest your wireless dreams. And it took me a long time to rediscover my me outside of what people told me that I should be. Beautiful. Alok, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. If folks wanted to find you and support you online, where can they do that? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at A-L-O-K-V-M-E-N-O-N. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community, and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles, and special access. Because I love you, because I love you.